Okay, here we go. Now, so we've been, we've been um, looking at a, a, a short series called When Christianity and Culture Clash. Now, I was go- last Sunday was going to be the last message, but seeing that we're going away for, um, uh, and we have a speaker next Sunday, I just thought it was only right to have one more message on when Christianity and culture clash. And so in your Bibles, if you turn to Matthew 20, and verses 20 to 28 is where what the text will be all about. But first, before we go there, I've got a little slideshow. Actually, it's a book I'm reading uh, that to introduce this, and it's called Who is the Boss? And this is by Josh Goffin. Who is the boss? So so today's uh, message is titled Leadership. And so we have uh, two guys in a boat, and uh, apparently they're going to fight over who's in charge. And so here they go. I am the boss. No, I am the boss. I am taller than you, but I am more terrifying. I have invented a better bouncing machine. Don't you love the duck? My invention is supremely superior. My manners are finer than yours. But I am a much nicer person. I am master of the sword. Or is it sword? (laughs) And I am king of all that I see. The moon is my special friend, but you can't spin like a top. No weight is too heavy for me. Ah, my balance is perfect. Even lightning obeys my command. I am exceptionally gifted. Not a duck. Okay, no one bugles better than I. And no one moves faster than I. I am the boss. No, I am the boss. Crack! Yeah, that's what happens when you don't know who the boss is, right? Now who is the boss? Ah, it's the duck. Leadership is important. Good leadership isn't restrictive, it's freeing. It's not demoralizing, it's empowering. The dictionary defines leadership, I mean the dictionary is really insightful, not. The position or function of a leader, well, is... The first dictionary definition I looked at was leadership's lead. I mean, it's somebody who leads. It's like, okay, it's, anyway, but when you, when you look at, um, there, there's a position or function of a leader, a person who uh, guides or directs a group. When I asked Google for the best answer, the words influence and guide were key words in their answers. And I really like this one from Sarah Long. Um, it says, 
It's a stewardship of responsibility. I, 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 I love that definition of what leadership is, a stewardship of responsibility. You're responsible for the people entrusted to your care. And so, now, getting into this, we're comparing what the world thinks leadership is and what leadership is according to God's word, right? Now, the world's definition of leadership, and, and I, I know, and I want to sort this out right from the very beginning because you could get the wrong idea and become very angry at the world, but we're not to be angry at the world. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 13, 1, be subject to the governing authorities. And so th- that is our mandate as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus. We need, whether we agree with those authorities or not, we are subjects to those authorities. That's the very first thing I need to say. Because it's easy to go through this stuff and say, wow, we should be just against authority. We should march against them. We should bring them down. We should disrespect them because they're not godly. No, they're not godly. We're the ones that are supposed to be godly. Not them. Now, the other thing is 1 Peter 2.17, honor the king. And so we have from Paul and from Peter, we have very... Um, very clear instructions of how we are supposed to look at at the ungodly government. And so I want to say that first. Let's read our text. So um, this is so, so interesting. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, you know who Zebedee's sons are, right? As John and James, the sons of thunder. And they're the ones that wanted to call lightning down and fire down from heaven and destroy the Samaritan city that didn't want to host Jesus, right? And so these guys, yeah, you want them in leadership. <laughs> not at this point, anyway. So, so in Romans, I mean, uh, Matthew, we start reading at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, that's Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And he's talking to those two disciples now. And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they said to him, we are able. And so he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. Amen. Now, now in my outline, just quite simply, is the cultural norm, what we expect from the world, right? That's number one, the broken church in the way of Christ. And so those three things I want to just look at uh, through this, with this as being my springboard. And, and so today... I mean, in Jesus' day, the, the Romans ruled with an iron fist. They really did. I mean, to the Romans, might made right. And, and so they used fear, and they used force and leadership. And there was, a, there was a lot of jockeying for position. There was a lot of betrayal. Ask Julius Caesar. You too, Brutus? Right? There, was, there was lots of competition near the top. Right? For anybody in leadership, there was lots of competition. And they used their authority, and, and they used it liberally. They loved their authority. They loved their power. Even the tax collectors, of whom Matthew was one, they took advantage of their authority and their position, and they took more than what was theirs, or they took, and, and that was just the way it was in those days. Now, our history shows us that the world never really changed. After Rome, there were many other little Romes that came up, and, and well, here are a few quotes from one leader, see if you can figure out who this is. I do not see why man should not be just as cruel as nature. It's not truth that matters, but victory. Figured out yet? Humanitarianism is the expression of stupidity and cowardice. If you win, you need not have to explain. If you lose, you should not be there to explain. Anybody have an idea yet? It is Adolf Hitler. And, and make a lie big, make it simple, keep saying it, and eventually people will believe it. Safe and effective. No, okay, I better not go there. <laughs> Excuse me. Okay. I, I, I use emotion um, for the many and reserve reason for the few. Generals think war should be waged like the attorneys of the Middle Ages. I have no use for knights. I need revolutionaries. This is, these are all quotes from a man who wanted to conquer the world with his power and with his strength. We live in a, a culture um, that is more and more like that. I mean, so in Jesus' day, it was like that. The worldly culture, the, the, the leadership in the world was like that. All through history, leadership was like that. We have our Stalins and Mussolinis and Hitlers, and we still have them. And, and today, we live in a political climate and, and, and a political culture that's becoming more and more dictatorial, dictating what you can do and what you can't do. We have a general election coming up here in Alberta, and the, the pitch for your vote is going in full swing. Unfortunately, most elections are about slandering the other opponent 
rather than what can I do for you or how can I make your life better. I mean, there's a little, they throw a little of that in because they have to, but they really put down the other person so that kind of to elevate themselves, right? I don't like it. I n- I've never liked it. But what the problem is, is that many churches have adopted that style. They have adopted some of those tactics from the world, and it's not good. The cultural norm, Dan Foster writes the following from an article published last year. He said, when I was 17 years old, I acquired my first position as a simple supermarket shop assistant. I was excited about the prospect of earning a wage, but equally naive about the dynamics of the workplace. One day, early in my employment, I was stacking cornflakes onto the shelves when I became aware that someone was standing behind me. I turned around to see the manager of the supermarket. Notice he's not the owner. He's the manager. Okay, He's got some power. He's got some authority. Without warning, he stepped right into my personal space and leaned in so close I could smell the cigarette smoke on his breath. Who's your boss? Spat the manager. Mm, You are? I said, more than a little confused by the question. That's right, he said. Now respect me. And then he simply walked off. I didn't realize it at the time, but I had just had my first encounter with an authoritarian leader. I want to tell you that his bizarre behavior was an aberration among leaders. He says he wished that that was just an aberration, but it wasn't. It was way more common. At 17 years old, Dan Foster experienced firsthand what Jesus was explaining to his disciples. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great um, uh, who are great exercise authority over them. So the disciples knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, and and it was difficult. If you don't think that the United States and Canada aren't like that, I might ask you where you've been for the last three years. Because we've experienced really, both countries have experienced really things that we should have never experienced in a country that is supposed to be free. I don't know how many they hired, a lot of them, but the government of Canada paid over $75,000 to successful applicants to become compliance officers. Compliance officers under the Quarantine Act. You couldn't travel outside Canada without those individuals calling and or visiting your location to enforce a two-week quarantine. This is called lording it over them. Lording it over them, according to Jesus. In our system of government, if a member of the ruling party disagrees with with the leader and votes his conscience, when the leader calls for consensus, well, let's just say they are soon independents. This is called lording it over them. 
It's not right. But it's the worldly system. And it's something that the church and believers cannot and should not emulate. Well, the church is broken. And many churches have adopted that style of, of lording it over them. And it breaks my heart. If it breaks my heart, do you think, what, it, what does it do to God's heart? God is absolutely grieved by what's going on. Absolutely grieved. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians chapter 5. Again, John's record of Jesus praying in John 17 shares some of the same thoughts. Sanctify them by your word, by your truth. Your word is truth. And so although the church is broken, and I really believe it is in our day, why is the church broken? Because it's made up of broken people. We are tainted. We, have, we are tainted by sin. Now, we do have God's word to guide us into truth. And that's what these passages say clearly that we have. Like, is, is this a passage in Ephesians about husbands and wives or is it about Christ and his church? It's about both. But there's a big opportunity that Paul presents this argument about Jesus and his church and how the church can be guided and cleansed, it's with his word. It's with God's word that the church can be guided and cleansed. And so although the church is broken, we have God's word to guide us into truth if we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us. And that's important. God uses his word and his spirit together. Always together. The word without the spirit, the spirit word is dangerous. And you can get off track. The word and the spirit together. The challenges for the church are large. In 2019, 4,500 churches closed their doors in the United States. 3,000 churches opened. So that trend, as it continues, more churches are closing and churches are getting smaller and smaller. Smaller churches in rural communities like ours are finding it difficult to find pastors, and we have a lot of churches in that category. The AGC does. As a matter of fact, as a community church, remember to pray for them because they're looking for a pastor, and their interim pastor shared with us that that was going to be one of the big challenges is for a pastor to say yes to coming to a small community and a small church. And so the challenges are large. Community, our culture is increasingly hostile to anyone who wholeheartedly follows Jesus. Anyone who takes God's word seriously. Our culture is, is more and more against that. Our culture often sees the many scandals surrounding church leadership. And I could tell you story after story about, about bad church leadership. Leadership that has gone bad and churches that have gone bad and experiences, but I don't have to tell you. that It's all over the news all the time. And culture sees that. 
pressure and division from groups who call themselves Christians is a real issue as well. With a limited, uh, I mean, don't, they don't care uh, about really following God's word. They want to update God's word because it's not inclusive enough. Really? God so loved the world, the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's everybody. That's pretty inclusive, I think. But to some, the word of God is old-fashioned. And it needs to be updated. And some churches say that. I don't think they're real churches. They can't be. Because if they deny the word of God, they're denying Christ Jesus himself. Church leadership models vary. This is... This one um, really presents a mixed message to the world around us. Which leadership model is correct? I want to take a look at, um, well, there's a number of models, but I want to just take a look and so you know what these models are, what they look like. And I don't think any diagram fully expresses what the church government should be and what it should look like. I don't think... And, um, but there's a list of three main ones, and I've kind of added two to that. And so, Episcopal model, this model is also called the hierarchical model, uh, and this model takes its name from the Greek word episkopos, which is translated overseer or bishop. This model is used by the Episcopals, uh, the Episcopals, <laughs> The Anglicans, the Catholics, the Orthodox, and the Methodist churches. The Roman Catholic system is by far the most complicated as far as this method of uh, church government. Um, And personally, I don't think there's a whole lot of scriptural support for this form of government. Any scriptural support is a stretch. Also, there's no such thing as a bishop who rules over an elder. Not in the Bible. Elders and bishops are the same thing in the New Testament And so, anyway, going on, the Presbyterian model is the second model, and this comes from the Greek, um, it's presbyteros. (laughs) Anyway, I, I didn't take Greek when I went to school. Which means elder. In this view, the members of the church elect elders to a to a board of elders. The pastor of the church is considered one of the elders each elder having equal authority. The Presbyterians and the Lutherans are examples of this model. There is some scriptural support for this model. Uh, The congregational model. Now, under this view, each individual church has its own government. Each member of the local congregation has a voice. The congregation can delegate decision-making power over to the pastor uh, or staff on some issues, but the congregation has the final authority. Baptist churches, the community church in town, and our church here would be examples of this form of government. Now, the scriptural support for this form of government is similar to the Presbyterians. Actually, they use the same scriptures. The strength of this model is that the whole congregation is involved in decision-making, The weakness of this model is that the whole congregation is involved in decision-making. It is a strength and a weakness, because have you ever sat in a committee? 
where they can't make a decision or they can't meet together because so-and-so has another commitment and so it gets pushed off and pushed off. It, it's, the whole congregation gets a say yes, but sometimes that can be a real problem. At times, I think committees are part of the curse. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Another weakness is that pastors are often seen as employees of the congregation. And so the pastor does everything. We hired that pastor, and so he's got to say what we think he needs to say, and he's got to do what, he, what we think he needs to do. And so there's no room for the pastor to have vision. If the pastor doesn't preach what the congregation wants to hear, goodbye. There is legitimate scriptural evidence to suggest that leaders, that is, lead pastors, are actually there to lead. And they should lead. It should be that way. And then another model, and I'm going to say that there's a house church model. Now, under this view, a small group of people meet together on a regular basis for teaching and encouragement. There is definitely a place for house churches. China has millions of Christians in house churches. There are some positive characteristics like intimacy, but there are real dangers too, like disgruntled would-be leaders that left local churches because they couldn't get along. I've seen that over and over again, and that's a real danger because of church infighting. Most of the New Testament churches started as house churches, but then they developed uh, further and they didn't stay there as house churches. Uh, then the fifth model is the mega church model. Now, under this view, a lot of people come together in one place. The largest church auditorium in the world, I think, is the Glory Dome. This is in Nigeria. It seats 100,000 people. 100,000 people in a church. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine singing in that? And in Africa, no less where they are fairly active in their worship. That would be absolutely amazing to be there. Uh, the largest attendance in a church is, or uh, a church is South Korea in Seoul, where 480,000 480, are part of one church. India is a close second with 400,000 and 350,000 two separate churches. These are uh, kind of of the Pentecostal full gospel persuasion. Those are large churches. Their weakness, the weakness of a mega church is that people can be easily missed. Now they have to have, a, they have, to have an organizational structure of pastors and pastors, pastoring pastors and and small groups and, and all of that. It, it, it is, it, it, but it is a real challenge. But the, the real challenge for mega churches is that often it's one pastor. One pastor is seen like a rock star almost. And that can be so, so dangerous, a lack of accountability. So do you want my opinion on which way I think is most biblical. I'm glad you asked that. 
here's my opinion. Just about any system of church government will work. All of the ones that I've mentioned here, they are workable, and they can work if those in leadership cling to the word of God as their final authority and are filled with the Holy Spirit and adopt the servant leadership style that Jesus talks about. But since you're asking, I think a combination of the congregational model and the Presbyterian model would be a pretty good, a pretty good model for church government and leadership. And we're close to that. Got lots of work to do, but we're close. It's also important that there is accountability. That is, for, for anybody in leadership, there needs to be accountability. So there needs to be accountability two ways. There needs to be accountability to a congregation, and there needs to be accountability outside the congregation to a higher authority. And, and of course, yes, a lot of pastors say, well, God's my authority. Yes, and, and he should be, but you need an accountability, whether it's a denominational head or a, a, an area manager, or somebody you need, a, a leader needs to be accountable. And that's very important. Now, what about the way of Christ? If you were to describe the way of Christ in one word, what, would, what, what word would you choose as far as leadership? Well, servanthood is a good word. Um, humility is a good word. Are there any more words? Responsibility, well, I mean, even I mean, even ungodly leaders have responsibility, but a lot of ungodly leaders don't have servanthood and don't have humility. And that, that's just now humility. To be a servant takes humility. Jesus shares really strong words. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. A slave. That takes humility to be a slave. You have no rights. Zero. A slave had no rights. They were property. And so if you were a slave of Jesus, you were his property. You were bought with a price. And that is so upside down from the world's point of view. Isn't it? That's so upside down. Just a few days after this, Jesus demonstrated his servant leadership in the upper room by washing his disciples' feet. And we're to follow that. I've watched Jesus' Revolution a couple of times now. Anybody own the movie? Okay. You need to you need to get that and watch it over and over and over again. I've watched it a couple of times now, and the tears keep on coming every time. It always touches me so deeply. It's such a powerful movie, and now you can own it. <laughs> Chuck Smith is the pastor of the church where there is little growth and not much hope for the future. Hippies start attending the church, and the church board is concerned that they have no shoes on, and their dirty feet are going to ruin the carpet. Oh, my goodness if we had those problems today. I love the next scene. The next scene shows a large line of hippies waiting to enter the church, and as the camera pans towards the entrance of the church, there's Pastor Chuck Smith 
with a, with a basin of water and welcoming each individual into the church as he's washing their feet. He gives them such a warm welcome. You are welcome here. And they go in and they're all so thankful. That is servant leadership. That's the way of Christ. Timothy was Paul's pupil, learning from Paul how to be a pastor in the church. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he talks to Timothy about the roles of leadership, who they should be and who they shouldn't be. In chapter 2, he talks specifically about the role of women in the church. One of the big questions <laughs> when I was uh, in credentialing, in my credentialing interview with the AGC, was what do you think of women's in leadership in the church? And it, it, it is one of those distinctives of the AGC that they take the word of God seriously. And, and so when Paul says that women shouldn't be leaders, that's what the AGC says, AGC says that the ladies you know, can't be ordained as pastors, right? And so... And so I said, you know, I grew up in a church where there was only, you know, mostly ladies. And so that's what they had to work with, and we had to work with what God gave us. And so I grew up in a church like that. And so coming to Provost, you know, it shouldn't be a problem, right? But it, was, it isn't the norm for the AGC. Now, God can work outside the box. Praise God. He can work outside the box and often does work outside the box. But so chapter 2 is about the role of women in the church. Chapter 3, Paul talks about the qualifications of both bishops. The actual meaning of the word bishop is overseer. Again, another word to uh, describe a bishop is the word elder. And then deacons. And deacons, they're differ differentiated from elders in that elders have to be able to preach. That's not said of deacons. Elders should be able to teach the word of God that's not said of deacons. And so deacons are more there to take care of, of, of the physical needs of the people and the church, whereas the elders or bishops take care of the spiritual needs. Does that make sense? And so uh, the shorter version of um, what leadership in the church is supposed to look like is found in Paul's letter uh, to Titus. Well, I wish I had two hands. Yeah, we'll get that fixed up for next time. I guarantee you that. Okay, Titus chapter 1. And this is uh, verses uh, 5 to 9. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a servant of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both exhort and convict those who contradict. And then he explains what that means after that. And so that's the shorter version 
of leadership in the church. Too many churches have completely ignored the instructions from the Word of God when it comes to leadership. And I will say that smaller churches are somewhat different, and, and you have to work with what you've been given. And so by God's grace, even smaller churches can thrive and grow. Now, here are four qualities of servant leadership that I think are important. And then picking out from what Paul has taught. Four, four words. The first word is integrity. Integrity. The world tells us to do whatever it takes to achieve our goals. The latest motivation speaker, they show us how to dress and act and get noticed. That's not God's way. In Proverbs 21.3, we read, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. As a servant leader, integrity could very well be the most important quality. It's the foundation on which all the other leadership qualities rest. Integrity. Integrity. It's so important. Humility is the second. Listen to the words of Dr. Kent Schlichtemeyer. I did okay on that. Come on. That was... The notion of becoming a servant leader is on the surface an oxymoron. The concept servant and leader are incongruous goals in our society. A more familiar and desired image of a leader is someone on top rather than one who embraces menial tasks such as washing the feet of others, stacking dishes, setting up chairs, or picking up trash. Servant leaders are counter are counterculture as they humbly put the needs of others first and eagerly empower those they lead to fulfill their potential to reach optimal success. First Peter 5 5 says, You are you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this word opposes, God opposing the proud, when, you, when you've got pride in your life and that's an issue, this, this is a military term, this opposes, and that's God sets his army up against you. He comes against you like with force. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Number three is flexibility. A leader needs to be flexible. I know, I, I, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. That's Philippians chapter 4, 12 and 13. Jesus was flexible. If he could, he would receive anyone who came to him, if he was able. He didn't turn anyone away. And um, you've heard of Bob Goff, I think. Maybe some of you have heard who Bob Goff is. He's a lawyer, author, speaker. He wrote Love Does. His story is amazing. How he came to Christ is amazing. I love his story. It was, he was a, a high school student. He was... Um, and there was this, I think it was a youth for Christ worker that, was, that would come and visit. And he, he kind of liked him because he had a beard. 
and he had a motorcycle. I think that was that was why he liked him. But but he was really kind of lost in his life. He didn't know, didn't have any direction or anything. But he showed up at his doorstep one I, I, one morning. I think it was a Sunday morning. And and he found that this youth for Christ worker was home, and he said, "Do you want to go to the?" go to this national park with me and I think it was either hiking or, or mountain climbing or or and maybe you know we could find a job and he wanted to go for a week or two and see what was going on right and so he said just a minute and he went back into the house and he came out sure I'll go with you I'll just get my pack and they left and they went away and it wasn't and and, and they spent the entire week together I think it was a week and they got back and and you know, he didn't preach to him or anything. He just spent time with him. And then when they got back, he came into the house, and then he noticed that there's all these boxes, and he says, what's, you know, what's, what's going on? He got married the day before. The guy that took the time to go with him and spend a week with him was flexible. Wow. Got married the day before. Now, Bob Goff is a believer in Christ because of that flexibility, because the Holy Spirit told that Youth for Christ worker that this is important. You need to spend time with this young man. And a life was changed. Well, the fourth thing, the fourth word as far as servant leadership is courage. First uh, Corinthians sixteen thirteen says, "Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong." Now it takes courage to be a leader today. It takes real courage. There is pressure um, from our culture to be a certain way. There's pressure from within to be a certain way. There's pressure to never talk about sin or obedience. Let me tell you something. Let me ask you something. Was Jesus okay with those who? purposely or passively were bent on being disobedient. Was Jesus okay with that? Jesus wasn't okay. <laughs> A servant leader will confront sin and disobedience in love, but it will be confronted. And that takes real courage in our day because people don't want the truth. Even believers don't want the truth. When they, when they are living in their sin, they don't want to know the truth. The truth will set them free, but they don't want to hear it. Because the world or, or those that call themselves believers and followers of Jesus, that's a different Jesus they're following. It's not the Jesus of my Bible. The last verse I want to look at is, is, is Hebrews thirteen seventeen. I wish I had two hands. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And the next verse starts out, Pray for us. And so for any leaders, this is, this is my point. This, this isn't say, you guys need to listen to me. No, that's, that's not what this is all about. That, this, this is all about Jesus. He's, 
He's the person that is central. He's the person that we love. He's the person we serve, and we serve him together. We grow together in Jesus. But pray for your leaders. I'm not the only leader in this church. There's a number of us. Pray for us. We need your prayers. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word for us today. And this, this being a servant leader, um, this is so countercultural. Uh, we, we, we look at the world around us and we don't see much integrity. We don't see much humility. We don't see much flexibility. And we don't see any courage. And, and yet this is, this, is what you, this is what you want from us. And so, especially those who are leaders, I pray that you would help us to, to lead with these, uh, with these qualities. And uh, we are here to serve. And each one of us should serve and, and to, be, to emulate the, the servant leadership of Jesus. And so help us and help us do, do this well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passion in your heart, the joy of God be your strength when times are difficult. The presence of God, a peace that overflows in the word of God, the nourishment for your very soul. Go in peace. In Jesus' name, amen.